Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear you come in. I've been reading over this collection of poetry. Come on, sit, sit. Hi, hello, and welcome to Kraken's Cavern. I should read some of these poems to you sometime. They're beautifully whimsical moments, just captured in rhyming couplets. I remember reading somewhere that poetry is how we capture space. Music is how we capture time. With both, we can travel anywhere in the world in an instant, even back in time. When I was really young, one of the first stories that I read was Dracula. It probably explains a lot, but anyway. Without even really being old enough to understand, I was able to feel like I was standing in Whit Bay, watching the fog roll in as that doomed ship docked in the port. Even somewhere as simple as Yorkshire became somewhere alien to me. The power of words was something I admired even then. The story of Alice that we've been enjoying has captured the hearts and minds of so many people. A place where logic is illogical, words are wild magic, and so powerful as to turn a riddle about a raven and a writing desk into this perplexing question that we've never truly had an answer to. The Mad Hatter's Tea Party is a table that some of us never left, just moving from one seat to the next. I hope these stories and this research has given you a moment to stop and breathe. Maybe to teleport you to a place and time in your own past, where you sat in a warm summer's day and everything seemed right with the world. Or upside down, in a rabbit hole of daydreams. My uncle believed in the power of those words, the multiple meanings of simple phrases. I mean, look at this place. Organising a library by theme is absolutely something he would do. Half done. I still haven't given up. Phrasing's tricky when everyone else says it's past tense, but anyway. All these reflections have me in a reflective mood. It's probably intentional. So, let's say we finish the story this evening, shall we? Well, if you're ready, then we'll begin. And this is the final part of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. Chapter 7. A Mad Tea Party There was a table set out under a tree in front of the house, and the March Hare and the Hatter were having tea at it. A Dormouse was sitting between them, fast asleep and the other two were using it as a cushion, resting their elbows on it, and talking over its head. Very uncomfortable for the Dormice, thought Alice. Only as it's asleep, I suppose it doesn't mind. The table was a large one, but the three were all crowded together at one corner of it. No room, no room, they cried out when they saw Alice coming. There's plenty of room, said Alice indignantly, and she sat down in a large armchair at one end of the table. Have some wine, the marcher said in an encouraging tone. Alice looked around at the table, but there was nothing on it but tea. I don't see any wine, she remarked. There isn't any, said the marcher. Then it wasn't very civil of you to offer it, said Alice angrily. Well, it wasn't very civil of you to sit down without being invited, said the marcher. I didn't know it was your table, said Alice. It's let out for a great many more than three. Your hair wants cutting, said the Hatter. 
We've been looking at Alice for some time with great curiosity, and this was his first speech. You should learn not to make personal remarks, Alice said with some severity. It's very rude. The Hatter opened his eyes very wide on hearing this. But all he said was, Why is a raven like a writing desk? Come, we shall have some fun now, thought Alice. I'm glad they've begun asking riddles. I believe I can guess that, chatted the lad. Do you mean to think that you can find out the answer to it? said the March Hare. Exactly so, said Alice. Then you should say what you mean, March Hare went on. I do, Alice hastily replied. At least, at least I mean what I say. That's the same thing, you know. Not the same thing a bit, said the Hatter. Why, you might as just well say that I see what I eat. It's the same thing as I eat what I see. You might as just well say, added the March Hare, that I like what I get is the same thing as I get what I like. You might as just as well say, added the Dormice, who seemed to be talking in his sleep, that I breathe when I sleep is the same thing as I sleep when I breathe. It is the same thing with you, said the Hatter. And here the conversation dropped, and the party sat silent, while Alice thought over all she could remember about ravens and writing desks, which wasn't much. The Hatter was the first to break the silence. What day of the month is it? he said, turning to Alice. He had taken his watch out of his pocket and was looking at it uneasily, shaking it every now and then and holding it to his ear. Alice considered a little, and then said, The fourth. Two days wrong, said the Hatter. I told you butter wouldn't suit the works, he added, looking angrily at the March Hare. It was the best butter, the March Hare meekly replied. Yes, but some crumbs must have got in as well, the Hatter grumbled. You shouldn't have put it in with the bread knife. The March Hare took out the watch and looked at it gloomily. Then he dipped it into his tea and looked at it again. But he could think of nothing better to say than his first remark. It was the best butter, you know. Alice had been looking over his shoulder with some curiosity. What a funny watch, she remarked. It tells the day of the month and doesn't tell what o'clock it is. Why should it? muttered the Hatter. Does your watch tell you what year it is? Of course not, Alice replied very readily. That's because it stays the same year for such a long time together. Well, it's just the case with mine, said the Hatter. Alice felt dreadfully puzzled. The Hatter's remark seemed to her to have no sort of meaning in it, and yet it was certainly English. I don't quite understand you, she said, as politely as she could. The Dormice is asleep again, said the Hatter, and he poured a little hot tea upon its nose. The Dormouse shook its head impatiently and said, without opening its eyes, Of course, of course. Just what I was going to remark myself. Have you guessed the riddle yet? The Hatter said, turning to Alice again. No, I gave it up, Alice replied. What's the answer? I haven't the slightest idea, said the Hatter. Nor I, said the March Hare. Alice sighed wearily. I thought you might do something better with the time she said, than wasting it asking riddles that have no answers. If you knew time as well as I do, said the Hatter, you wouldn't talk about wasting it. It's him. I don't know what you mean, said Alice. Of course you don't, the Hatter said, tossing his head contemptuously. I dare say you've never even spoken to time. Perhaps not, 
Alice cautiously replied. But I know that I have to beat time when I learn music. Ah, well, that accounts for it, said the Hatter. He won't stand the beating. No, if you only kept on good terms with him, he'd do almost anything you'd like with the clock. For instance, suppose it were nine o'clock in the morning. Just time to begin lessons. And we only have to whisper a hint to time. And round goes the clock in a twinkling. Half past one, time for dinner. I only wish it was, March Hare said to itself in a whisper. That'll be grand, certainly, said Alice thoughtfully. But then, I shan't be hungry for it, you know? Not at first, perhaps, said the Hatter. But you could keep it to half past one as long as you liked. Is that the way you manage? Alice replied. The Hatter shook his head mournfully. Not I, he replied. We quarrelled last March, just before he went mad, you know? Pointing with his teaspoon at the March Hare. It was at the great concert given by the Queen of Hearts, and I had to sing. Twinkle, twinkle, little bat, how I wonder what you're at. You know the song, perhaps? I heard something like it, said Alice. It goes on, you know, the Hatter continued, in this way. Up above the world you fly, like a tea tray in the sky. Twinkle, twinkle. Here, the dormouse shook itself and began singing in its sleep. Twinkle, 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 twinkle. And went on for so long that they had to pinch it to make it stop. Well, I hardly finished the first verse, said the Hatter, when the Queen bawled out. He's murdering the time. Off with his head. How dreadfully savage, exclaimed Alice. And ever since that, the Hatter went on in a mournful tone. They won't do a thing I ask. It's always six o'clock now. A bright idea came into Alice's head. Is that the reason so many things are put out here? She asked. Yes, that's it, said the Hatter with a sigh. It's always tea time, and we've no time to wash the things between whiles. Then you keep moving around, I suppose, said Alice. Exactly so, said the Hatter, as things get used up. But what happens when you come to the beginning again? Alice ventured to ask. Suppose we change the subject, the March Hare interrupted, yawning. I'm getting tired of this. I vote the young lady tells us a story. I'm afraid I don't know one, said Alice, rather alarmed at the proposal. Then the Dormice shall, they both cried. Wake up, Dormice. And they pinched it on both sides at once. The Dormice slowly opened its eyes. I wasn't asleep, it said in a hoarse, feeble voice. I heard every word you fellows were saying. Tell us a story, said the March Hare. Yes, please do, pleaded Alice. And be quick about it, added the Hatter, or you'll be asleep again before it's done. Once upon a time, there were three little sisters, the Dormice began in a great hurry, and their names were Elsie, Lacey, and Tilly, and they lived at the bottom of a well. What did they live on, said Alice, who always took a great interest in questions of eating and drinking. They lived on treacle, said the Dormice after thinking a minute or two. They couldn't have done that, you know, Alice gently remarked. They'd have been ill. So they were, said the Dormouse. Very ill. Alice tried a little to fancy to herself what such an extraordinary way of living would be like, but it puzzled her too much, so she went on. But why did they live at the bottom of a well? Take some more tea, 
the March Hare said to Alice, very earnestly. I've had nothing yet, Alice replied in an offended tone, so I can't take more. You mean you can't take less, said the Hatter. It's very easy to take more than nothing. Nobody asked your opinion, said Alice. Well, who's making personal remarks now? The Hatter asked triumphantly. Alice did not quite know what to say to this, so she helped herself to some tea and bread and butter and then turned to the Dormice and repeated her question. Why did they live at the bottom of a well? The Dormice again took a minute or two to think about it and then said, It was a treacle well. There is no such thing, Alice was beginning very angrily. The Hatter and the March Hare went, Shh! And the Dormice sulkily remarked, can't be civil. You better finish the story for yourself. Oh, no, please go on, Alice said very humbly. I won't interrupt you again. I dare say there may be one. One, indeed, said the Dormouse indignantly. However, he consented to go on. And so there were these three little sisters, and they were learning to draw, you know. What did they draw? said Alice, quite forgetting her promise. Treacle said the Dormice, without considering at all this time. I want a clean cup, interrupted the Hatter. Let's all move one place on. He moved on as he spoke, and the Dormice followed him. The Marcher moved into the Dormice's place, and Alice rather unwillingly took the place of the Marcher. The Hatter was the only one who got any advantage from the change, and Alice was a good deal worse off than before, as the Marcher had just upset the milk jug into his plate. Alice did not wish to offend the Dormice again, so she began very cautiously. But I don't understand. Where did they draw the treacle from? Well, you can draw water out of a water well, said the Hatter. So I should think you could draw treacle out of a treacle well. Eh, stupid. But they were in the well, Alice said to the Dormice, not choosing to notice this last remark. Of course they were, said the Dormice. Well in. The answer so confused poor Alice that she let the Dormouse go on for some time without interrupting it. They were learning to draw, the Dormouse went on, yawning and rubbing its eyes, for it was getting very sleepy. And they draw manner of things. Everything that begins with an M. Why with an M? said Alice. Why not? said the Marcher. Alice was silent. The Dormouse had closed its eyes by this time and was going off into a doze. But, on being pinched by the Hatter, it woke up again with a little shriek and went on. That begins with an M, such as mousetraps and the moon and memory and muchness. You know, you say many things are much of a muchness. Did you ever see much of a thing as a drawing of a muchness? Really, now you ask me, said Alice, very much confused. I don't think. Then you shouldn't talk, said the Hatter. This piece of rudeness was more than Alice could bear. She got up in great disgust and walked off. The Dormouse fell asleep instantly, and neither of the others took the least notice of her going, though she looked back once or twice, half hoping that they would call after her. The last time she saw them, they were trying to put the Dormouse into a teapot. At any rate, I'll never go there again, said Alice as she packed her way into the wood. It's the stupidest tea party I was ever at in all of my life. 
Just as she said this, she noticed that one of the trees had a door leading right into it. Well, that's very curious, she thought. But everything's curious today. I think I may as well go in at once. And in she went. Once more she found herself in a long hall and close to the little glass table. Now, I'll manage better this time, she said to herself, and began by taking the little golden key and unlocking the door that led into the garden. Then she set to work nibbling at the mushroom. She had kept a piece of it in her pocket until she was a foot high. Then she walked down the little passage and then she found herself at last in a beautiful garden among the bright flower beds and the cool fountains. Chapter 8 The Queen's Croquet Ground A large rose tree stood near the entrance of the garden and the roses growing on it were white but there were three gardeners at it, busily painting them red. Alice thought this was a very curious thing. She went nearer to watch them, and, just as she came up to them, she heard one of them say, Look out now, Five, to go splashing paint over me like that. I couldn't help it, said Five, in a sulky tone. Seven jogged my elbow. On which Seven looked up and said, That's right, Five, always lay the blame on others. You'd better not talk said Fife. I heard the Queen say only yesterday you deserved to be beheaded. What for? said the one who'd spoken first. That's none of your business, too, said Seven. Yes, it is his business, said Fife. And I'll tell him. It was for bringing the cooked tulip roots instead of onions. Seven flung down his brush and had just begun, well, of all of the unjust things, when his eye chanced to fall upon Alice as she stood watching them and he checked himself suddenly. The others looked around also, and all of them bowed low. Would you tell me, please, said Alice, a little timidly, why are you painting those roses? Five and seven said nothing, but looked at two. Two began in a low voice. Why, the fact is, you see, miss, this here ought to have been a red rose tree, and we put a white one in by mistake. And if the Queen was to find out, we should have all of our heads cut off, you know? So, you see, miss, we're doing our best before she comes to... At this moment, Five, who had been anxiously looking around the garden, called out, The Queen! The Queen! And all three gardeners instantly threw themselves flat upon their faces. There was a sound of many footsteps, and Alice looked around, eager to see the Queen. First came ten soldiers carrying clubs. These were all shaped like the three gardeners, oblong and flat, with their hands and feet at the corners. Next, the ten courtiers, and they were ornamented all over with diamonds and walked two and two as the soldiers did. After these came the royal children. There were ten of them, and the little deers came jumping merrily along, hand in hand, in couples. They were all ornamented with hearts. Next came the guests, mostly kings and queens, and Alice then recognised the white rabbit. He was talking in a hurried, nervous manner, smiling at everything that was said, and went by without even noticing her. Then followed the knave of hearts, carrying the king's crown on a crimson velvet cushion. And last of all, in this great possession, came the king and queen of hearts. 
Alice was rather doubtful whether she ought to lie down on her face like the three gardeners. She could not remember ever having heard of such a rule of processions. Besides, who should be the use of a procession, thought she, if all of the people had to lie down on their faces so that they couldn't see it? So, she stood where she was, and she waited. When the procession came opposite to Alice, they all stopped and looked there. And the Queen said severely, Who is this? She said it to the knave of hearts. He only bowed and smiled in reply. Idiot, said the Queen, tossing her head impatiently and turning to Alice. She went on. What is your name, child? My name is Alice, so please, Your Majesty, said Alice very politely. She added to herself, Why, they're only a pack of cards, after all. I needn't be afraid of them. And who are these? said the Queen, pointing to the three gardeners who were lying round the rose tree. For, you see, as they were lying on their faces, and the pattern on their backs was the same as the rest of the pack, she could not tell whether or not they were gardeners, or soldiers, or courtiers, or three of her own children. How should I know, said Alice, surprised at her own courage. It's no business of mine. The Queen turned crimson with fury, and after glaring at her for a moment like a wild beast, began screaming, Off with her head! Off with her! Nonsense, said Alice, very loudly and decidedly, and the Queen was silent. The King laid his arm upon her hand, and timidly said, Consider, my dear, she's only a child. The queen turned angrily away from him, and said to the knave, Turn them over. The knave did so, very carefully, with one foot. Get up, said the queen, in a shrill, loud voice, and the three gardeners instantly jumped up, and began bowing to the king, the queen, the royal children, and everybody else. Leave off that, screamed the queen. You make me giddy. And then, turning to the rose tree, she went on, what have you been doing here? May it please your majesty, said Two, in a very humble tone, going down on one knee as he spoke. We were trying to... I see, said the queen, who had meanwhile been examining the roses. Off with their heads. And the procession moved on. Three of the soldiers remained behind to execute the unfortunate gardeners, who ran to Alice for protection. Shan't be beheaded, said Alice and she put them into a large flower pot that stood near. The three soldiers wandered about for a minute or two, looking for them, and then quietly marched off after the others. Are their heads off? shouted the queen. Their heads are gone, if it please your majesty, the soldiers shouted in reply. That's right, shouted the queen. Can you play croquet? The soldiers were silent, and looked at Alice, as the question was evidently meant for her. Yes, shouted Alice. Come on then, roared the Queen, and Alice joined the procession, wondering very much what would happen next. It, it's a very fine day, said the timid voice at her side. She was walking by the white rabbit. He was peeping anxiously into her face. Very, said Alice. Where's the Duchess? Shh, said the rabbit, in a low, hurried tone. He looked anxiously over his shoulder as he spoke and then raised himself upon tiptoe, put his mouth close to her ear and whispered, She's under sentence of execution. What for? said Alice. 
Did you say what a pity? The rabbit asked. No, I didn't, said Alice. I don't think it's at all a pity. I said, what for? She boxed the queen's ears, the rabbit began. Alice gave a little scream of laughter. Hush, the rabbit whispered in a frightened tone. Queen will hear you. You see, she came rather late, and the queen said, Get to your places, shouted the queen in a voice of thunder. And people began running about in all directions, tumbling up against each other. However, they got settled down in a minute or two, and the game began. Alice thought she had never seen such a curious croquet ground in all of her life. It was all ridges and furrows. The croquet balls were live hedgehogs, and the mallets were live flamingos. And the soldiers had to double themselves up and stand on their hands and feet in order to make the arches. The chief difficulty Alice found at first was in managing her flamingo. She succeeded in getting its body tucked away, comfortably enough, under her arm, with its legs hanging down. But generally, just as she'd got the neck nicely straightened out and was going to give the hedgehog a blow with its head, it would twist itself round and look up at her face with such a puzzled expression that she could not help bursting out laughing. And when she got its head down, it was going to begin again. It was very provoking to find that the hedgehog had unrolled itself and was in the act of crawling away. Besides all of this, there was generally a ridge or a furrow in the way whenever she wanted to send the hedgehog to. And as the doubled up soldiers were always getting up and walking off to other parts of the ground, Alice soon found herself at the conclusion that it was a very difficult game indeed. The players all played at once, without waiting for turns, quarrelling all the while, and fighting for the hedgehogs. And in a very short time, the queen was in a furious passion, and went stamping about and shouting, Off with his head! Off with her head! At up once in a minute. Alice began to feel very uneasy, to be sure. She'd not as yet heard any dispute with the queen, but she knew that it might happen at any moment. And then, thought she, what'll become of me? They're dreadfully fond of beheading people here. The great wonder is that there's anyone left alive. She was looking about for some way of escape, wondering whether she could get away without being seen, when she noticed a curious appearance in the air. It puzzled her very much at first, but after watching it for a minute or two, she made it out to be a grin, and she said to herself, It's the Cheshire Cat. Now I shall have somebody to talk to. How are you getting on? said the cat, as soon as there was a mouth enough for it to speak with. Alice waited until its eyes appeared, and then nodded. It's no use speaking to it, she thought, till its ears have come, or at least one of them. In another minute the whole head appeared, and then Alice put down her flamingo and began an account of the game, feeling very glad that she'd someone to listen to her. The cat seemed to think that there was enough of it now in sight, and no more of it appeared. I don't think they play at all fairly, Alice began, in a rather complaining tone. And they all quarrel so dreadfully, one can't hear oneself speak. And they don't seem to have any rules in particular. At least, if there are, nobody attends to them. And you've no idea how confusing it is, all the things being alive. For instance, there's the arch I've got to go through next, walking about at the other end of the ground. And I should have croqueted the Queen's Hedgehog just now, only it ran away when it saw mine coming. And how do you like the Queen? said the cat in a low voice. Not at all, said Alice. She's so extremely... Just then, 
she noticed that the queen was close behind her, listening. So she went on, likely to win, that is hardly worthwhile finishing the game. The queen smiled and passed on. Who are you talking to? said the king, coming up to Alice and looking at the cat's head with great curiosity. It's a friend of mine, the Cheshire Cat, said Alice. Allow me to introduce it. I don't like the look of it at all, said the king. However, it may kiss my hand if it likes. I'd rather not, Cat remarked. Don't be impertinent, said the king. And don't look at me like that. He got behind Alice as he spoke. Cat may look at a king, said Alice. I read that in a book, but I don't remember where. Well, it must be removed, said the king very decidedly, and he called out to the queen who was passing at the moment. My dear, I wish you would have this cat removed. The queen had only one way of settling all difficulties, great or small. Off with his head, she said, without even looking around. I'll fetch the executioner myself, said the king eagerly, and he hurried off. Alice thought she might as well go back and see how the game was going on. She heard the queen's voice in the distance, screaming with passion. She had already heard her sentence, three of the players to be executed for missing their turns, and she did not like the look of things at all, as the game was in such confusion that she never knew whether it was her turn or not. So she went off in search of her hedgehog. The hedgehog was engaged in a fight with another hedgehog, which seemed to Alice an excellent opportunity for cocaine one of them with the other. The only difficulty was that her flamingo had gone across to the other side of the garden, where Alice could see it trying in a helpless sort of way to fly up into a tree. By the time she'd caught the flamingo and brought it back, the fight was over, and both the hedgehogs were out of sight. But it doesn't matter much, thought Alice, as all the arches have gone from this side of the ground. So she tucked it away under her arm so that it might not escape again and went back to have a little more conversation with her friend. When she got back to the Cheshire Cat, she was quite surprised to find quite a crowd had gathered around it and there was a dispute going on between the executioner, the king and the queen who were all talking at once while all the rest were quite silent and looked very uncomfortable. The moment Alice appeared, she was appealed to by all three to settle the question and they repeated their arguments to her. Though they all spoke at once, she found it very hard to make out exactly what they said. The executioner's argument was, you can't cut off a head unless there was a body to cut it off from, and that he'd never had to do such a thing before, and he wasn't going to begin at this time of his life. The king's argument was that anything that had a head could be beheaded, and that you were to talk nonsense. The Queen's argument was that if something wasn't done about it in less than no time, she'd have everybody executed all round. It was this last remark that she'd made that made the whole party look so grave and anxious. Alice could think of nothing else to say but belongs to the Duchess. You'd better ask her about it. She's in prison, the Queen said to the executioner. Fetch her at once. And the executioner went off like an arrow. The cat's head began fading away the moment he was gone, and by the time he'd come back with the Duchess, it had completely disappeared. So the king and the executioner ran wildly up and down, looking for it, while the rest of the party went back to the game. Chapter 9 The Mock Turtle's Story You can't think how glad I am to see you again, you dear old thing, said the Duchess, 
She tucked her arm affectionately into Alice's and they walked off together. Alice was very glad to find her in such a pleasant temper and thought to herself that perhaps it was only the pepper that made her so savage when they met in the kitchen. When I'm a duchess, she said to herself, not in a very hopeful tone though, I won't have any pepper in my kitchen at all. Soup does very well without. Maybe it's always pepper that makes people hot-tempered, she went on, very much pleased at having found out a new kind of rule. And vinegar makes them sour, and chamomile that makes them bitter, and and barley sugar and such things that make children sweet-tempered. I only wish people knew that. They wouldn't be quite so stingy about it, you know? She had quite forgotten the Duchess by this time, and was a little startled when she heard the voice close to her ear. You're thinking about something, my dear, and that makes you forget to talk. I can't tell you just now what the moral of that is, but I shall remember it in a bit. Perhaps it hasn't won, Alice ventured to remark. Tut tut, child, said the Duchess. Everything's got a moral, if only you can find it. But she squeezed herself up closer to Alice's side as she spoke. Alice did not much like her keeping so close to her. First, because the Duchess was very ugly. And secondly, because she was exactly the right height to rest her chin on Alice's shoulder. And it was an uncomfortably sharp chin. However, she did not like to be rude. So she bored as well as she could. The game's going on rather better now, she said, by way of keeping the conversation a little. Tis so, said the Duchess. And the moral of that is, oh... "'Tis love, tis love that makes the world go round.' "'Somebody said,' Alice whispered, "'that it's done by everybody minding their own business.' "'Ah, well, it means much the same thing,' said the Duchess, "'digging her sharp little chin into Alice's shoulder, as she added, "'and the moral of that is... "'Take care of the sense, and the sounds will take care of themselves.' "'How fond she is of finding morals in things,' Alice thought to herself." I dare say you're wondering why I don't put my arm around your waist, the Duchess said, after a pause. Well, the reason is that I'm doubtful about the temper of your flamingo. Shall I try the experiment? He might bite, Alice cautiously replied, not feeling at all anxious to have the experiment tried. Very true, said the Duchess. Flamingos and mustard both bite, and the moral of that is, birds of a feather flock together. Only... Mustard isn't a bird, Alice remarked. Right, as usual, said the Duchess. But clear way you have of putting things. It's a mineral, I think, said Alice. Of course it is, said the Duchess, who seemed ready to agree on everything that Alice said. There's a large mustard mine near here, and the moral of that is, the more there is of mine, the less there is of yours. Oh, I know, exclaimed Alice who not attended to this last remark. It's a vegetable. It doesn't look like one, but it is. I quite agree with you, said the Duchess. And the moral of that is, be what you would seem to be. Or, if you'd like to put it more simply, never imagine yourself not to be otherwise than what it might appear to others, that what you were or might have been was not otherwise than what you had been, would have appeared to them to be otherwise. I think I should understand that better. Alice said very politely, if I had it written down. But I can't quite follow it as you say it. There's nothing to what I could say if I chose, the Duchess replied in a pleased tone. 
Pray, don't trouble yourself to say it any longer than that, said Alice. Oh, don't talk about trouble, said the Duchess. I'll make you a present of everything I've said as yet. A cheap sort of present, thought Alice. I'm glad people don't give birthday presents like that. But she did not venture to say that one out loud. Thinking again, the Duchess asked, with another dig of her sharp little chin. I have a right to think, said Alice sharply. She was beginning to feel a little worried. Just about as much right, said the Duchess, as pigs have to fly. And the... But here, Alice's great surprise, the Duchess's voice drifted away, even in the middle of her favourite word, moral. And the arm that was linked into hers began to tremble. Alice looked up, and there stood the Queen in front of them both, with her arms folded, frowning like a thunderstorm. A fine day, Your Majesty, the Duchess began in a low, weak voice. Now, I give you fair warning, shouted the Queen, stamping on the ground as she spoke. Either you or your head must be off, and in about half no time. Take your choice. The Duchess took her choice and was gone in a moment. Let's go on with the game, the Queen said to Alice, and Alice was too much frightened to say a word. They slowly followed her back to the croquet ground. The other guests had taken advantage of the Queen's absence and were resting in the shade. However, the moment they saw her, they hurried back to the game, the Queen merely remarking that a moment's delay would cost them their lives. All the time they were playing, the Queen never left off quarrelling with the other players, shouting, Off with his head! Off with her head! And those whom she sentenced were then taken into custody by the soldiers, who of course had to leave off being arches in order to do this, so that by the end of half an hour or so, there were no arches left, and all the players, except the King, the Queen and Alice, were in custody and under the sentence of execution. Then the Queen left off, quite out of breath, and said to Alice, Have you seen the Mock Turtle yet? No, said Alice. I don't even know what a mock turtle is. It's the thing that mock turtle soup comes from, said the queen. I never saw one or heard of one, said Alice. Come on then, said the queen, and he shall tell you his story. As they walked off together, Alice heard the king say in a low voice to the company generally, You're all pardoned. Come, that's a good thing, she said to herself, for she had felt quite unhappy at the number of executions that the queen had ordered. The very soon came upon a griffin lying fast asleep in the sun. And if you don't know what a griffin is, please look at the pictures. Up, lazy thing, said the queen. I take this young lady to see the mock turtle and to hear its history. I must go back and see after some executions I've ordered. And she walked off, leaving Alice alone with the griffin. Alice did not quite like the look of the creature, but on the whole she thought it would be quite as safe to stay with it as to go after the savage queen, so... She waited. Griffin sat up and rubbed its eye. Then it watched the queen till she was out of sight, and then it chuckled. What fun, said the griffin, half to itself and half to Alice. What is the fun, said Alice. Why she, said the griffin, in all her fancy, that they never executes anybody, you know. Come on, everybody says come on here, thought Alice. She went slowly after it. I was never so ordered about before, in all my life. Never. They'd not gone far before they saw the mock turtle in the distance, 
sitting sad and lonely on a little ledge of rock. And as they came closer, Alice could hear him sighing as if his heart would break. She pitied him deeply. What is his sorrow? she said to the griffin. And the griffin answered, very nearly in the same words as before. It's all his fancy, that. And he's got no sorrow, you know. Come on. So they went up to the mock turtle, who looked at them with large eyes full of tears, but said nothing. This here, young lady, said the griffin. She wants to know your history, she did. I'll tell it to her, said the mock turtle, in a deep, hollow tone. Sit down, both of you, and don't speak a word till I've finished. So, I sat down, and nobody spoke for some minutes. Alice thought to herself, I don't see how he can ever finish if he doesn't begin. But she waited patiently. Once, said the mock turtle at last with a deep sigh, I was a real turtle. Those words were followed by a very long silence, broken only by an occasional exclamation of Hyam! from the griffin and the constant heavy sobbing of the mock turtle. Alice was very nearly getting up and saying, Thank you, sir, for your interesting story. But she could not help thinking that there must be more to come. So she sat still and said nothing. When we were little, the mock turtle went on at last, more calmly, though still sobbing a little now and then. We went to school in the sea. The master was an old turtle. We used to call him Tortoise. Why did you call him Tortoise? If that he wasn't one, Alice asked. We called him Tortoise because he taught us, said the Mock Turtle. Really, you're so very dull. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for asking such a simple question, added the Griffin. And then they both sat silent and looked at Paralis, who felt ready to sink into the earth. At last the Griffin said to the Mock Turtle, Drive on, old fellow. Be all day about it. And he went on in these words. Yes, we went to school in the sea, though you mayn't believe it. I never said I didn't, interrupted Alice. You did, said the Mock Turtle. Hold your tongue, added the Griffin, before Alice could speak again. The Mock Turtle went on. We had the best of educations. In fact, we went to school every day. I've been to day school too, said Alice. You needn't be so proud of all of that. With extras? asked the Mock Turtle, a little anxiously. Yes, said Alice. We learned French and music. And washing? said the Mock Turtle. Certainly not, said Alice indignantly. Ah, then yours wasn't a really good school, said the Mock Turtle, in a tone of great relief. Now at ours, they had, at the end of the hill, French, music, and washing. Extra. You couldn't have wanted it much, said Alice, living at the bottom of the sea. I couldn't afford to learn it, said the Mock Turtle with a sigh. I only took the regular course. What was that? inquired Alice. Reeling and writhing, of course, to begin with, the Mock Turtle replied. And then all the different branches of arithmetic. Ambitraction, distraction, uglification and derision. I've never heard of uglification, Alice ventured to say. What is it? The griffin lifted up both its paws in surprise. Never heard of uglifying, it exclaimed. 
You know what the beautify is, I suppose? Yes, said Alice doubtfully. It means to make anything prettier. Well then, the griffin went on, if you don't know what the uglify things are, you are a simpleton. Alice did not feel encouraged to ask any more questions about it, so she turned to the mock turtle and said, What else have you had to learn? Well, there was mystery, mock turtle replied, counting off the subjects on his flappers. Mystery, ancient and modern. With geography, then drawing. The drawing master was an old cockerel. They used to come in once a week. He taught us drawing and stretching and fainting in coils. What was that like? asked Alice. Well, I can't show it to you myself, the mock turtle said. I'm too stiff. And the griffin never learnt it. Hadn't time, said the griffin. I went to the classical master, though. He was an old crab, he was. I never went to him, the mock turtle said with a sigh. He taught laughing and grief, they used to say. So he did, so he did, said the griffin, sighing in his turn. Both creatures hid their faces in their paws. How many hours a day did you do lessons, said Alice, in a hurry to change the subject. Ten hours on the first day, said the mock turtle, nine the next, and so on. What a curious plan, exclaimed Alice. That's the reason they're called lessons, the griffin remarked, because they lessen from day to day. This was quite a new idea to Alice, and she thought it over a little before she made her next remark. Then the eleventh day must have been a holiday. Of course it was, said the mock turtle. And how did you manage on the twelfth? Alice went on eagerly. That's enough about lessons, Griffin interrupted in a very decided tone. Tell her something about the games now. Chapter 10 The Lobster Quadrille The mock turtle sighed deeply and drew back one flapper across its eyes. He looked at Alice and tried to speak, but for a minute or two, sobs choked his voice. Same as if he had a bone in his throat, said the griffin, and I set to work shaking him and punching him in the back. At last, the mock turtle recovered his voice, and with tears running down his cheeks, he went on again. You may not have lived much under the sea. I haven't, said Alice, and perhaps you were never even introduced to a lobster. Alice began to say, I once tasted, but checked herself hastily and said, no, never. So you can have no idea what a delightful thing a lobster quadrille is. No, indeed, said Alice. What sort of dance is it? Why, said the griffin, you first form a line along the seashore. Two lines, cried the mock turtle. Seas, turtles, salmon, and so on. And then when you've cleared all the jellyfish out of the way, that generally takes some time, interrupted the griffin. You advance twice, each with a lobster as a partner, cried the griffin. Of course, the mock turtle said. Advance twice, set the partners. Change lobsters and retire in the same order, continued the griffin. Then, you know, the mock turtle went on. You throw the... The lobsters, shouted the griffin, the bound into the air. As far out to the sea as you can. Swim after them, screamed the griffin. Turn a somersault in the sea, cried the mock turtle, capering wildly about. Change lobsters again, yelled the griffin. 
the top of his voice. And then back to land again. And that... That's all the first figure, said the mock turtle, suddenly dropping his voice. And the two creatures, who had been jumping about like mad things all this time, sat down again very sadly and quietly and looked at Alice. Uh, it must be a very pretty dance, said Alice timidly. Would you like to see a little of it, said the mock turtle. Very much indeed, said Alice. Come, let's try the first figure, said the mock turtle to the griffin. Can do it without lobsters, you know. Which shall we sing? Oh, you sing, said the griffin. I've forgotten the words. So, they began solemnly dancing round and round Alice, every now and then treading on her toes when they passed too close, and waving their forearms to mark the time, when a mock turtle sang this very slowly and sadly. Will you walk a little faster, said a whiting to a snail. There's a porpoise close behind us, and he's treading on my tail. See how eagerly the lobsters and turtles all advance. They're waiting on the shingle. Will you come and join the dance? Will you, won't you, will you, won't you, will you join the dance? Will you, won't you, will you, won't you, won't you join the dance? You can really have no notion how delightful it'll be when they take us up and throw us with the lobsters at the sea. But the snail replied, too far, too far, and gave a look of chance. Said he thanked the whiting kindly, but would not join the dance. Would not, could not, would not, could not, would not join the dance. Would not, could not, would not, could not, could not join the dance. What matters how far we go, his scaly friend replied. There's another shore, you know, upon the other side. The farther off from England, the nearer is to France. And turn not peel, beloved snail, but come and join the dance. Will you, won't you, will you, won't you? Will you join the dance? Will you, won't you, will you, won't you? Won't you join the dance? Thank you. It's a very interesting dance to watch, said Alice, feeling very glad that it was over at last. And I do so like the curious song about the whiting. Oh, as to the whiting, said the mock turtle, they... You, you've seen them, of course. Yes, said Alice. I've often seen them at... Di she checked herself hastily. I don't know what din is, said the Mock Turtle. But if you've seen them so often, of course you know what they're like. I believe so, Alice replied thoughtfully. They have their tails in their mouths, and they're all over crumbs. You're wrong about the crumbs, said the Mock Turtle. Crumbs would wash all off into the sea. They have their tails in their mouths, and the reason is... Here, the mock turtle yawned and shut his eyes. Tell her about the reason and all of that, he said to the griffin. The reason is, said the griffin, that they would go out with the lobsters to the dance, so they got thrown out to sea, so they had to fall a long way, so they grabbed their tails in their mouths, so that they wouldn't get them out again. That's all. Thank you, said Alice. It's very interesting. I never knew so much about a whiting before. I can tell you much more than that if you like, said the griffin. Do you know why it's called a whiting? I've never thought about it, said Alice. Why? Does the boots and shoes, the griffin replied very solemnly. Alice was thoroughly puzzled. Does the boots and shoes, she repeated in a wandering tone. 
Why, what are your shoes done with? said the griffin. I mean, what makes them so shiny? Alice looked down at them and considered a little before she gave her answer. They're done with blacking, I believe. Boots and shoes under the sea, Griffin went on in a deep voice, are done with whining. Now you know. And what are they made of? Alice asked, in a tone of great curiosity. Souls and eels, of course, the Griffin replied rather impatiently. Any shrimp could have told you that. If I'd been the whiting, said Alice, whose thoughts were still running on the song, I'd have said to the porpoise, keep back, please. I don't want you with us. They were obliged to have him with them, the mock turtle said. No wise fish would ever go anywhere without a porpoise. Wouldn't it really? said Alice in a tone of great surprise. Of course not, said the mock turtle. Why, if a fish came to me and told him he was going on a journey, I would say, with what porpoise? Don't you mean purpose? said Alice. I mean what I say, the mock turtle replied in an offended tone. The griffin added, Come, let's hear some of your adventures. I could tell you my adventures, beginning from this morning, said Alice, a little timidly. But it's no use going back to yesterday, because I was a different person then. Explain all that, said the mock turtle. No, no, the adventures first, said the griffin, in an impatient tone. Explanations take such a dreadful time. So Alice began telling their adventure, from when she first saw the white rabbit. She was a little nervous about it, just at first. The two creatures got so close to her, one on each side, and opened their eyes and their mouths so very wide. She gained courage as she went on. Her listeners were perfectly quiet till she got to the part about her repeating, your old father, William, to the caterpillar. And the words were all coming out different. And then a mock turtle drew a long breath and said, that's very curious. It's all about as curious as it can be, said the griffin. It all came out different, the mock turtle repeated thoughtfully. I should like to hear her try and repeat something now. Tell her to begin. He looked at the griffin, as if he had thought it some kind of authority over Alice. Stand up and repeat, tis the voice of the sluggard, said the griffin. How the creatures order one about to make one repeat lessons, thought Alice. Would just as well be at school at once. However, she got up and began to repeat it but her head was so full of the lobster quadrille that she hardly knew what she was saying, and the words came out very queer indeed. "'Tis the voice of the lobster I heard him declare. "'You have baked me too brown. I must sugar my hair. "'As a duck with its eyelids, as he with his nose, "'trims his belt and his buttons, and turns out his toes. "'When the sands are all dry, he is gay as a lark, "'and will talk in contentious tones of the shark.' And when the tide rises and the sharks are around, his voice has a timid and tremulous sound. That's different from what I used to say when I was a child, said the griffin. Well, I've never heard it before, said the mock turtle. But it does sound like uncommon nonsense. Alice said nothing. She had sat down with her face in her hands, wondering if anything would ever again feel natural. I would like to have it explained, said the mock turtle. She can't explain it, said the griffin hastily. Go on with the next verse. But what about his toes, the mock turtle persisted. How could he turn them out with his nose, you know? It's the first position in dancing, Alice said. 
but she was dreadfully puzzled by the whole thing and longed to change the subject. Go on with the next verse, Griffin repeated. Begins, I pass by his garden. Alice did not dare to disobey, though she felt sure it would all come out wrong. So she went on in a trembling voice. I passed by his garden and marked with one eye how the owl and the panther were sharing a pie. The panther took the pie crust and gravy and meat while the owl had the dish at the share of the treat. When the pie was all finished, the owl as a boon was kindly permitted to pocket the spoon. While the panther received knife and fork with a growl and concluded the banquet by... What is the use of repeating all of that stuff? The mock turtle interrupted. If you don't explain it as you go along. Well, it's by far the most confusing thing I've ever heard. Yes, I think you'd better leave off, said the griffin. And Alice was only too glad to do so. Shall we try another figure of the lobster quadrille? The griffin went on. Or would you like the mock turtle to sing you another song? Oh, a song, please. If the mock turtle would be so kind, Alice replied. So eagerly that the griffin said in a rather offended tone. Hmm. No accounting for taste. Sing her turtle soup, would you, old fellow? The mock turtle sighed deeply and began in a voice choked with sobs to sing this. Beautiful soup, so rich and green, waiting in a hot terrine. Who for such dainties would not stoop? Soup of the evening, beautiful soup. Soup of the evening, beautiful soup. Beautiful soup. Beautiful soup, soup of the evening, beautiful, beautiful soup. Beautiful soup, who cares for fish, game or any other dish? Who would not give all else for to pay? Any worth only of beautiful soup. Penny worth only of beautiful soup. Beautiful soup. Beautiful soup, soup of the evening, beautiful, beautiful soup. Chorus again, cried the griffin, and the mock turtle had just begun to repeat it, when a cry of, the trial's beginning, was heard in the distance. Come on, cried the griffin, and taking Alice by the hand, it hurried off, without waiting for the end of the song. Whose trial is it? Alice panted as she ran, but the griffin only answered, come on and ran the faster, while more and more faintly came, carried on the breeze that followed them, the melancholy words. Soup of the evening, beautiful, beautiful soup. Chapter 11 Who stole the tarts? The king and queen of hearts were seated on their throne when they arrived, with a great crowd assembled about them, all sorts of little birds and beasts, as well as the whole pack of cards. The knave was standing before them in chains, with a soldier on either side to guard him, and near the king was the white rabbit, with a trumpet in one hand and a scroll of parchment in the other. In the very middle of the court was a table, with a large dish of tarts upon it. They looked so good that it made Alice quite hungry to look at them. I wish they'd get the trial done, she thought, and hand out all of those refreshments. But there seemed to be no chance of this, so she began looking at everything about her to pass away the time. Alice had never been into a court of justice before, but she had read about them in books, and she was quite pleased to find that she knew the name of nearly everything there. 
that's the judge, she said to herself, because of his great wig. The judge, by the way, was the king. And he wore his crown over the wig. Look at the front piece if you want to see how he did it. And he did not look at all comfortable. And it was certainly not becoming. And that's the jury box, thought Alice. And those twelve creatures. She was obliged to say creatures, you see. Because some of them were animals and some of them were birds. Suppose there being jurors. She said the last word two or three times over to herself, being rather proud of it. For she thought, and rightly so, the very few little girls of her age knew the meaning of it all. However, jurymen would have done just as well. The twelve jurors were all writing very busily on slates. What are they doing? Alice whispered to the griffin. They can't have anything to put down yet, before the trial's begun. They're putting down their names, griffin whispered for reply, for fear they should forget them before the end of the trial. Stupid things, Alice began in a loud and indignant voice. But she stopped herself hastily, for the white rabbit cried out, Silence in the court! And the king put on his spectacles and looked about anxiously round to make out who was talking. Alice could see, as well as if she were looking over their shoulders, that all the jurors were writing down stupid things on their slates. She could even make out that one of them didn't know how to spell the word stupid, and that he had to ask his neighbour to tell him. A nice muddle of their slates they'll be in before the trial's over, thought Alice. One of the jurors had a pencil that squeaked. This, of course, Alice could not stand. She went round the court and got behind him, and very soon found an opportunity of taking it away. She did it so quickly that poor little juror, it was Bill the lizard, could not make out at all what had become to it. So after hunting all about for it, he was obliged to write with one finger for the rest of the day. And this was of course very little use, as it left no mark on the slate. Harold, read the accusation, said the king. On this, the white rabbit blew three blasts on his trumpet and then unrolled the parchment scroll and read as follows. The queen of hearts, she made some tarts, all on a summer day. The knave of hearts, he stole her tarts and took them quite away. Consider your verdict, the king said to the jury. Not yet, not yet, the rabbit hastily interrupted. There's a great deal to come before that. Call the first witness, said the king. And the white rabbit blew three blasts on the trumpet and called out, First witness! The first witness was the hatter. He came in with a teacup in one hand and a piece of bread and butter in the other. I beg pardon, your majesty, he began, for bringing these in, but I hadn't quite finished my tea when I was sent for. You ought to have finished, said the king. When did you begin? The hatter looked at March Hare, who had followed him into the court, arm in arm with the dormice. 14th of March, I think it was. 15th, said the marcher. 16th, said the dormice. Write that down, the king said to the jury. And the jury eagerly wrote down all three dates on their slates, and then added them up and reduced the answer to shillings and pence. Take off your hat, the king said to the hatter. It isn't mine, said the hatter. Stolen, the king exclaimed, turning to the jury here and Selim made a memorandum of the fact. I keep them to sell, the hatter added his explanation. I've none of my own. I'm a hatter. Here the queen put on her spectacles and began staring hard at the hatter. He turned pale and fidgeted. Give your evidence, said the king, and don't be nervous, or I'll have you executed on the spot. 
This did not seem to encourage the witness at all. He kept shifting from one foot to the other, looking uneasily at the queen. And in this confusion, he bit a large piece out of his teacup instead of the bread and butter. Just at this moment, Alice felt a very curious sensation, which puzzled her a good deal till she made out what it was. She was beginning to grow larger again. She thought at first she would get up and leave the court. But on second thought, she decided to remain where she was, as long as there was room for her. I wish you wouldn't squeeze so, said the Dormouse. He was sitting next to her. I can hardly breathe. I can't help it, said Alice very meekly. I'm growing. You've no right to grow here, said the Dormouse. Don't talk nonsense, said Alice more boldly. You know you're growing too. Yes, but I grow at a reasonable rate, said the Dormouse. Not in that ridiculous fashion. And they got up very sulkily and crossed over to the other side of the court. All this time, the queen never left off staring at the hatter. And just as the dormouse crossed the court, she said to one of the officers of the court, Bring me the list of the singers in the last concert, on which the wretched hatter trembled so, that he shook off both his shoes. Give me your evidence, the king replied angrily, or I'll have you executed, whether you're nervous or not. I'm a poor man, your majesty, the hatter began in a trembling voice, and I hadn't begun my tea. Not above a week or so ago. And what with the bread and butter getting so thin? And the twinkling of the tea. Twinkling of what? said the king. It began with the tea, the hatter replied. Of course, twinkling begins with the tea, said the king sharply. Do you take me for a dunce? Go on. I'm a poor man, the hatter went on. And most things twinkled after that. Only the marcher said... I didn't, Marchar interrupted in a great hurry. You did, said the Hatter. I deny it, said the Marchar. He denies it, said the King. Leave out the last part. Well, at any rate, the Dormouse said, the Hatter went on, looking anxiously round to see if he would deny it too. But the Dormouse denied nothing, being fast asleep. After that, continued the Hatter, I cut some more bread and butter. And what did the Dormouse say? One of the jury asked. That I can't remember, said the Hatter. You must remember, remarked the king, or I'll have you executed. The miserable Hatter dropped his teacup and bread and butter and went down on one knee. I'm a poor man, your majesty, he began. You're a very poor speaker, said the king. Here, one of the guinea pigs cheered and was immediately suppressed by the officers of the court. As it's rather a hard word, I'll just explain to you how it was done. They have a large canvas bag, which is tied up at the mouth with strings, and into this they slipped the guinea pig, head first, and then sat upon it. I'm glad I've seen that done, thought Alice. I so often read in the newspapers at the end of trials that there was some attempt at applause, which is immediately suppressed by the officers of the court, and I never understood what it meant until now. If that's all you know about it, you may stand down, continued the king. Can't go no lower, said the hatter. I'm on the floor as it is. Then you may sit down, the king replied. Here, the other guinea pig cheered, and was suppressed. Come, that finishes the guinea pigs, thought Alice. Now, we shall get on better. I'd rather finish my tea, said the hatter, with an anxious look at the queen, who was reading the list of singers. You may go, said the king, and the hatter hurriedly left the court, without even waiting to put his shoes on.
and just take his head off outside, the Queen added to one of the officers. The Hatter was out of sight before the officer could get to the door. Call the next witness, said the King. The next witness was the Duchess's cook. She carried the pepper box in hand, and Alice guessed who it was, even before she got to the court. By the way, the people near the door began sneezing all at once. Give your evidence, said the king. Shan't, said the cook. The king looked anxiously at the white rabbit, who said in a low voice, Your majesty must cross-examine this witness. Well, if I must, I must, the king said, with a melancholy air. And after folding his arms and frowning at the cook till his eyes were nearly out of sight, he said in a deep voice, What are the tarts made of? Pepper, mostly, said the cook. Treacle, said a sleepy voice behind her. Call her that dormice, the queen shrieked out. Behead the dormice. Turn the dormice out of court. Suppress him. Pinch him. Off with his whiskers. For some minutes, the whole court was in confusion. Getting the dormice turned out, and by the time they had settled down again, the cook had disappeared. Never mind, said the king with an air of great relief. Call the next witness. And he added, in an undertone to the queen, Really, my dear, you must cross-examine the next witness. It quite makes my forehead ache. Alice watched the white rabbit as he fumbled over the list, feeling very curious to see what witness it would have been like. For they haven't got much evidence yet, she said to herself. Imagine her surprise when the white rabbit read out, at the top of his shrill little voice, the name Alice. Chapter 12. Alice's Evidence Here, cried Alice, quite forgetting in the flurry of the moment how large she had grown in the last few minutes, and she jumped up in such a hurry that she tipped over the jury box with the edge of her skirt, upsetting all of the jurymen out onto the heads of the crowds below. And there they lay sprawling about, reminding her very much of a globe of goldfish that she had accidentally upset the week before. Oh, I beg your pardon, she exclaimed in a tone of great dismay and began picking them up as quickly as she could, for the accident of the goldfish kept running into her head. She had a vague sort of idea that they must be collected at once and put back into the jury box, or they would die. The trial cannot proceed, said the king, in a very grave voice, until all of the jurymen are back in their proper places. All, he repeated with great emphasis, looking hard at Alice as he said so. Alice looked at the jury box and saw that, in her haste, she put the lizard in head downwards, and the poor little thing was weaving his tail about in a melancholy way, being quite unable to move. She soon got it out again and put it right. Not that it signifies much, she said to herself. I should think it would be quite as much use in the trial one way or on the other. As soon as the jury had a little recovered from the shock of being upset, and that their slates and pencils had been found and handed back to them, they set to work very diligently to write out a history of the accident. All except the lizard. You seem too much overcome but do anything but sit with its mouth open, gazing up to the roof of the court. What do you know about this business? The king said to Alice. Nothing, said Alice. Nothing whatsoever, persisted the king. Nothing whatsoever, said Alice. That's very important, the king said, turning to the jury. They were just beginning to write this down on their slates when the white rabbit interrupted. Unimportant, your majesty means, of course, he said in a very respectful tone, but frowning and making faces at him as he spoke. 
unimportant, of course, I meant, the king hastily said, and went on to himself in an undertone. Important, unimportant, unimportant, important. As if he were trying which word sounded best. Some of the jury wrote down important. Some wrote down unimportant. Alice could see this, as she was near enough to look over their dates. But it doesn't matter a bit, she thought to herself. At this moment, the king, who had been for quite some time busy writing in his rule book, called out silence and read out from his book. Rule number 42. All persons more than a mile high to leave the court. Everybody looked at Alice. I'm not a mile high, said Alice. You are, said the king. Nearly two miles high, said the queen. Well, I shan't go at any rate, said Alice. Besides, that's not a regular rule. You just invented it just now. It's the oldest rule in the book, said the king. Well, then it ought to be number one, said Alice. The king turned pale and shut his notebook hastily. Consider your verdict, he said to the jury, in a low, trembling voice. There's more evidence to come yet, please, your majesty, said the white rabbit, jumping up in a great hurry. This paper's just been picked up. What's in it? said the queen. I haven't opened it yet, said the white rabbit. But it seems to be a letter, written by the prisoner to... somebody. It must have been that, said the king, unless it was written to nobody, which isn't unusual, you know. Well, who is it directed to, said the juryman. It isn't directed at all, said the white rabbit. In fact, there's nothing written on the outside. He unfolded the paper as he spoke and added, It isn't a letter after all. It's a set of verses. Are they in the prisoner's handwriting? asked another of the jurymen. They're not, said the white rabbit. And that's the queerest thing about it. The jury all looked puzzled. He must have imitated somebody else's hand, said the king. The jury all brightened up again. Please, your majesty, said the knave. I didn't write it, and they can't prove that I did. There's no name signed at the end. If you didn't sign it, said the king, that only makes the matter worse. You must have meant some mischief, or else you'd have signed your name like an honest man. There was a general clapping of hands at this. It was the first really clever thing the king had said all day. That proves his guilt, of course, said the queen. So, off with... It doesn't prove anything of the sort, said Alice. Why, you don't even know what they're about. Read them, said the king. The white rabbit put on his spectacles. Where shall I begin, please, your majesty, he asked. Begin at the beginning, the king said very gravely, and go on till you come to the end and then stop. There was a dead silence in the court, whilst the white rabbit read out those verses. They told me that you'd been to her, and mentioned me to him. She gave me a good character, but said I could not swim. He sent them word I had not gone. We know it to be true. And if she should push the matter on, what would become of you? I gave her one, they gave him two, you gave us three or more. They all returned from him to you, though they were mine before. If I or she should chance to be involved in this affair, he trusts you to set them free, exactly as we were. My motion was that you had been, before she had this fit, an obstacle that came between him, ourselves, and it. Don't let him know she liked him best, for this must ever be, a secret kept from all the rest, between yourself and me. 
That's the most important piece of evidence we've heard yet, said the king, rubbing his hands. So, now let the jury... Any one of them can explain it, said Alice. She had grown so large in the last few minutes that she wasn't a bit afraid of interrupting him. I'll give him sixpence. I don't believe there's an atom of meaning in it. The jury all wrote down on their slates. She doesn't believe that there's an atom of meaning in it. But none of them attempted to explain the paper. If there's no meaning in it, said the king, that saves a world of trouble, you do, as we needn't try to find any. And yet, I don't know, he went on, spreading out the verses on his knee and looking at them with one eye. Seemed to see some meaning in them, after all. Said I could not swim. You cannot swim, can you? he added, turning to the knave. The knave shook his head sadly. Do I look like it? he said, which he certainly did not being made entirely of cardboard. All right, so far, said the king, and he went on muttering the verses out to himself. We know it to be true. That's the jury, of course. If she should push the matter on, that must be the queen. What would become of you? Hmm, what indeed? I gave her one, they gave him two. Why? That must mean that he did with all of the tarts, you know. But it goes on. They all returned from him to you said Alice. Why? There they are, said the king triumphantly, pointing to the tarts on the table. Nothing can be clearer than that. Then again. Before she had this fit. You never had fits, my dear, I think, he said to the queen. Never, said the queen, furiously, throwing an inkstand at the lizard as she spoke. The unfortunate little Bill had left off writing on his slate with one finger, because he found it made no mark. But he now hastily began again using the ink that was trickling down his face, as long as it would last. Then the words don't fit you, said the king, looking round the court with a smile. There was a dead silence. It's a pun, the king added, in an angry tone, and everybody laughed. Let the jury consider their verdict, the king said, for about the twentieth time that day. No, no, said the queen. Sentence first, verdict afterwards. Stuff and nonsense, said Alice loudly. The idea of having the sentence first. Hold your tongue, said the Queen, turning purple. I won't, said Alice. Off with her head, the Queen shouted at the top of her voice. Nobody moved. Who cares for you, said Alice. She had grown to her full size by this time. You're nothing but a pack of cards. At this, the whole pack rose up into the air and came flying down upon her. She gave a little scream half of fright and half of anger, and tried to beat them off, and found herself lying on the bank, with her head in the lap of her sister, who was gently brushing away some dead leaves that had fluttered down from the trees upon her face. Wake up, Alice dear, said her sister. Why, what a long sleep you've had. Oh, I have had such a curious dream, said Alice. And she told her sister, as well as she could remember them, all these strange adventures of hers, that you've just been reading about. And when she had finished, her sister kissed her and said, It was a curious dream, dear, certainly. But now run into your tea. It's getting late. So Alice got up and ran off, thinking while she ran, as well she might. What a wonderful dream it had been. But her sister sat still just as she left her, leaning her head on her hand and watching the setting sun and thinking of little Alice and all of her wonderful adventures, till she too began dreaming after a fashion, 
and this was her dream. First, she dreamed about little Alice herself. Once again, tiny hands were clasped upon her knee, and bright eager eyes were looking up to hers. She could hear the very tones of her voice, and see that queer little toss of her head to keep back the wandering hair that would always get in her eyes. And still, as she listened, or seemed to listen, the whole place around her became alive with strange creatures of her little sister's dream. The long grass rustled at her feet as the white rabbit hurried by. The frightened mice splashed his way through the neighbouring pool. She could hear the rattle of the teacups as the March her and his friends shared their never-ending meal, and the shrill voice of the queen, ordering off unfortunate guests to execution. Once more, the pink baby was sneezing on the duchess' knees, while plates and dishes crashed around it. Once more, the shriek of the griffin and the squeaking of the lizard's slate pencil and the choking of the suppressed guinea pigs filled the air, mixed with the distant sob of the miserable mock turtle. So she sat on, with closed eyes, and half believed herself in Wonderland, though she knew she had but to open her eyes again, and all would change to a dull reality. The grass would be the only rustling in the wind, and the pool rippling to the waving of the reeds. The rattling teacups would change to the tinkling sheep bells as the queen's shrill cries, the voice of the shepherd boy. The sneeze of the baby, the shriek of the griffin, and all the other queer noises would change, she knew, to the confused clamour of a busy farmyard. While the lowing of the cattle in the distance would take the place of the mock turtle's heavy sobs. Lastly, she pictured to herself how the same little sister of hers would, in the aftertime, be herself a grown woman, and how she would keep, through all her riper years, the simple and loving heart of her childhood, and how she would gather about her other little children and make their eyes bright and eager with many a strange tale, perhaps even with the dream of Wonderland of long ago, and how she would feel with all of their simple sorrows and find the pleasure in all their simple joys, remembering her own child life and the happy summer days. The end. I never knew about that ending. With Alice's sister reflecting on the loss of youth and how Alice might always remember her dream. Interesting. Especially as it doesn't appear to suggest the next story. Through the looking glass. Hang on. Through the looking glass. Is that it? Sorry. Excuse me. Hello? Yes, it is indeed. Hello. Okay. I see. Thank you. My friend, I'm sorry, but that's an urgent matter that I must attend to. I'll need to be gone for a few days. I trust you'll look after this place in my absence. I wouldn't ask if I didn't believe you were capable. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to go pack, and I'll be gone before morning. There's a car coming to pick me up at dawn. Please, don't worry about me. I'll return as soon as I'm able. All right. Then I must take my leave. Good night, my friend. I hope you sleep well. You deserve that.